right, you know what that sound means. I am Mitch Maley, and we are back for another edition of the Bradenton Times podcast. And my guest this week is newly elected Bradenton City Councilman Josh Kramer, who was unopposed in his um, run in November. So as a result, we didn't have him on with the other candidates, and I wanted to invite Councilman Kramer to come in and just basically get introduced to our listeners and uh, talk about some of the same issues that we talked about with candidates. So, uh, Josh, thanks for joining us today. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, that music was loud. To <laughs> so, um, I guess the first thing that that's interesting is you are a longtime retired police officer in the city of Bradenton. So, can you tell us a little bit about your background as a police officer? How long you served? Where you started, and stuff like that. Uh, I started back in 1995 here with the department, Bradenton Police Department. Uh, started as patrol officer, then moved up sort of through the ranks. I my first real supervision job was being a field training officer, which was really beneficial uh, to me uh, as far as deciding at that point moved down the promotional track. So then promoted to corporal, promoted to sergeant, promoted to, took a little while to get promoted to lieutenant, but that was around the hiring freezes we had. Um, then promoted to captain, and then pretty quickly captain assistant chief, and uh, then retired back in May. Now, are you from Bradenton? No, I grew up in uh, Washington, D.C. when I was very little, um, in the district. A lot of people... I meet all kinds of people like, oh, yeah, I'm from D.C. I'm like, oh, yeah, where? <laughs> and they're like, oh, uh, some suburb. The greater Washington yeah, area. Some right. suburb. And I'm like, yeah, I grew up in the district. Got it. So I'm a little, I don't know, a little defensive about right, that. Right, right. Um, then we moved when I was uh, going into fifth grade. We moved, moved down to Ocean City, Maryland. Mom and we. Oh, I spent a lot of time there. We vacationed there every summer. We had a place there. And at Labor Day weekend, Mom and Dad said, hey, do you guys want to live down here? And my sister and I were like, yeah, sure. And uh, we sort of forgot that when we would visit in the wintertime, how desolate it was. Yeah, yeah. And it really, uh, back then especially, now there's a good a good bit of people who live year-round. Okay. But back then it was... Yeah, I remember we had family that lived down in the, uh, uh, like, Dewey and Rehoboth area. Yeah. And the same thing if we would go down in the wintertime, yeah. we just couldn't understand. It was yeah. just like a tumbleweed yeah. blown across. Yeah. traffic lights are taken away. Right. That's where the first, I've, I've always been told, that's where the first seasonal McDonald's ever was. was oh, really? City. They made enough in this in, from May until September to be able to close the rest of the year. I'm, I'm, my mouth is starting to water right now because I'm thinking of Grotto's Pizza. Oh, uh, Grotto's yeah. very good. Uh, dough Roller, obviously. Yeah, Dough Roller as well. Yeah. Yeah. Tony's. When I was a little kid, there was Tony's. Okay. Yeah. And uh, all that great fudge, those yeah. boardwalk fries yeah. with the vinegar yeah. on them, all yeah. of it. Yeah. Uh, great times back then. Yeah. I, uh, our family used to either, either go to Wildwood or we'd go down to the Maryland Park because they were yeah. kind of equidistant from where yeah. we grew up in Pennsylvania. And uh, I do remember that. We always like the food better in Maryland. Yeah, we have. So our family reunion was always up in southern New Jersey. Oh, okay. And, you know, half the time, by the time I'd be talking, you know, as a kid, but we'd say, oh, where are you guys living now? And they'd say, we'd say, oh, we're in Ocean City. They're like, oh, Ocean City, New Jersey. Ah, that's the other one, yeah. I was like, no, we're in Ocean City. The real Ocean City. Ocean City. Um, We used to, in fact, like when I was in college, I would work in Wildwood during the summer on the boardwalk. And we would put the car on that Cape May Lewis ferry yeah. and go over and visit my cousins and yeah. hang out with them for a weekend. Yeah, it's, so. it's a great way to get around. Yeah, yeah. Good times up there. Now, that, that's kind of interesting because we've talked a little bit on the podcast recently about like the growing pains that Manatee County is going through. And in many ways, it seems to me like it's almost like Florida's experiencing, particularly coastal Florida where we're at, is experiencing a lot of the same growing pains that the Northeastern seaboard did decades ago. So we've kind of already seen this. Uh, we've talked a little bit about how they're reimagining Anna Maria Island and, you know, how traffic is getting bad. But at the same time, I was like, you know, look, one of the things that that the, the sort of tension that always exists between residents and then people who vacation is that your tolerance for things like traffic and everything when you're on vacation, you just kind of accept it. And you also don't need to, like, negotiate the normal parts of life so right, much, you know, right. going to doctors, going to the grocery stores and all those things. Um, but, you know, the the reality has been since I was a little kid, you know, decades ago, that all of those places were traffic nightmares. Right. I, I remember what it was like, like how disappointing it was as a kid when we would get, we'd drive to like four hours to Ocean City and then when you'd finally get to the Barrier Islands, it's like, oh, we're here. It's like, no, you're not. Yeah, right, <laughs> it's right. going to be a long time before we get the car from here yeah. to, to, I mean, to park at the hotel. Yeah, a normal normal commute if you were driving from Ocean City to Washington, D.C. 
Yes, yeah. two and a half hours. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you do it on a Saturday or Sunday, anytime it's you know people are coming or going from DC to Ocean City, it's four and a half to five hours. Now that's a good issue to start with because you know that has been the thing that we've consistently heard the most from readers about over the past, I would say, at least two, probably three years has been traffic concerns. Right. And in terms of quality of life issues where people are like, look, I used to like to live here, but boy, you know, every time I get in a car, I'll say, for example, last week I was complaining on the podcast that I tried to run over to West Bradenton because I like to get cigars from the Tobacco Depot over there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I tried to do it on my lunch break though. Yeah. And it was just, I was like, all right, I got 45 minutes to be there and back. I could do that. And I couldn't. Right. And it was, I was probably in the store two minutes, but um you know, and a lot of this obviously predates your your time on the council. You've just arrived. But the city of Bradenton owns a lot of that because for, for decades, right. as I covered this, uh, previous mayors and councils have had this mindset that any sort of traffic solution that was on the table back then was bad for the city. Right. And they were the first street and yes, Sixth Ave, Manson yes. Avenue, all that. Um, but the one question I'm going to ask you that that is kind of my ask for anybody from the city that comes in is... When you look at potential just even Band-Aid type solutions, one real, real, uh, you know, just complete uh, pain in the ass that I, I, I have to get out there is when I'm coming back from the West on 6th Street, right? Right. And you get to, what is it, uh, 13th there where, where you turn onto the Green Bridge? Uh, or is that 14th? 9th. 9th. I'm sorry. Yeah. So you're on at, 9th Street. At 15th, you turn around, you go around the financial center. Right, right, financial right. 9th, you, you make the turn to the Green Bridge. Right. So... You have the one turn lane there, and then you have the two lanes. Everybody, and the only way really for it not to be a failed intersection is for people to cheat and and take the left on the outside. Um, And that creates a problem because you're technically breaking the law if there's an accident, and then the person on the near lane doesn't know because you don't have the right of way over them, so they're looking to change and get around it. Why doesn't the city just make that second lane a straight or turn option? I don't think it's as simple as the city doing it. Uh, because they're state roads, right? But they can. We can. We can. It has not been. We yes. can ask. We can plan for until the state gives the green light. But there that. hasn't been anything from the city on that, and that just seems like where it's like, okay, I understand that we missed the boat on three hundred one, and we should have took it all the way out, you know, across the river. I understand that we missed the opportunity to make the purchases where the Wawa and the Walgreens are when when they were vacant, and we could have CBS, made spaces yeah. for flyovers yeah. and stuff, right? Um, those those ships have sailed, but when it's like we're not, not even fully. really, I don't know that those really? are fully not for you, you use term flyover. I believe elevated highways grade probably coming north south is right. probably going to have to be a solution. Right, but, but we could have had the, the flyovers going east west if right. we would have. But gotten at the same those. time, when you if you were to do something from because the Desoto Bridge needs to be replaced. Yes, I mean that's that's in the planning. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a matter of what do we get for that. Um, if it is something that has been talked about as you call it the flyover, but more of a the elevated uh, bridge plan that would go from north of there to south, there's the politics of the neighborhood that is going to be crossing feeling like they're being either split in half or totally disparaged. Um, Do you think that's still like, I understand the old mindset of an overpass and the, the the thinking of, you know, Baltimore in the seventies where, you know, right. it just created complete blight and sure. stuff. But when, when I look at the solutions they've done in Tampa and St. Pete, right. it, that seems to be an antiquated way of thinking. Yeah, you're talking about like the Flintstone highway, right? You exactly. know, those highways hanging every direction. Mm-hmm. Um, what you see, I, I got old lightning games, season ticket old with lightning. Uh, we take the crosstown in. Yes. That's through a, you know, a port area, the sort of off of, 60 is mm-hmm. sort of what it's next to parallels almost and there's not trouble there it's it's green space underneath um the elevated areas it's uh that that opportunity exists um what they've done in pinellas county on 19 has maybe split that a little bit but that model isn't really the model that's used going forward it's the it's the elevated uh with open air underneath which right. and honestly first street 14th street are some of the deadliest and most dangerous roads in this county, which is one of the worst counties in the state for pedestrian fatalities and serious bodily injuries. And why wouldn't you want to have something that would alleviate that? Correct. So I, I think that we could, if we can talk to the state and get some 
good answers and work together on things. Now, have you felt because, like... Because here's the other thing. When I go to those games in Tampa, it's about an hour five to get there. Mm-hmm. Leaving my house, which I live downtown, at about roughly 5 to 5.15. Half an hour of that. All the way to Tampa. Downtown Tampa. Half an hour of that is getting out of Bradenton yes. and through Palmetto right. up to 275. So it's not just a Bradenton issue. Mm-hmm. It's all the way, it's the faucets have to be open to right. allow that traffic to get out that needs to get out. At the same time, we know by studies, um, approximately 35% of the traffic that passes through those points. It's not, yeah, it's originating not, outside exactly. and ending outside. That's why the Green Bridge coming into town is terribly backed up into town coming in the morning and terribly backed up on the way out of town in the afternoon. And it's because those people are passing through, which is why that uh, elevated portion of First Street potentially would help alleviate. Yeah, because it seems like one of the the miscalculations was a long, long time ago, the idea that 75 wasn't that far east, and it didn't seem right. that far east. Like when I first moved here, it was like, boom, yeah. you're right out at 75. And now it seems like it's a ways away. Yeah, so it's not a solution to get out there and get north unless you're yeah. really going far north. Right. Um, and even at that, depending on the time of day you're doing it, yes. you get to 64 and 75, and it's backed up yeah, exactly. to 301, yeah. mainly because of the construction. But when that's done, we'll see where it goes. Okay. Now, um, in that same vein, another thing that's come up a lot is the sort of connectivity that's missing in the downtown. So we've done a good job, in my opinion, at the riverfront and the main street, and that that one little part of the corridor has done well. Um, But where we really seem to have missed is the connectivity to, like, the stadium. And you have this area where you've got, you know, we had some synergy going about five, six, seven years ago now when MotorWorks came in right. and you had a tremendous amount of private investment coming in and rescuing a very blighted, long-standing, you know, not great neighborhood there. It still needs help. So absolutely still needs help. Uh, but it also helped kind of revitalize the Village of the Arts. You had more right. restaurants and stuff come in there sure. and all those things were playing off each other. You had the other brewery, uh, uh, they changed the names of recently, but the one that's on the other side of the ballpark. And it seemed like there wasn't as much of an effort to connect that to downtown. And we still have that part where it's like, I would love to see it if it felt like safer and more attractive for people to walk from say MotorWorks and Village of the Arts to the old Main Street and and develop that in between. Um, Is that something that the city can do more to support? I think so, absolutely. The whole idea of the ballpark ballpark district, I think at least in the next four years that I'm going to be here, will probably really take off. Uh, not because of anything necessarily I'm doing, but what we are doing as a city. Um, instead of, well, I would say instead of just saying, hey, pirates, do what you can, it's going to be the city, pirates, other businesses partnering to have that happen. I, if you really you look at any, any stadium built probably from the mid-90s in large, large cities, from the mid-90s till now, uh, traditionally built in parts of town that weren't the best. I mean, Baltimore, the Navy Yard area mm-hmm. in D.C., that's our old Chief Raz grew up as a yeah. cop in D.C. He said that's an area you wouldn't go alone. You oh, I remember. You yeah. weren't allowed to be Absolutely. dispatched alone. And I, that's an area we drove through quickly. My mm-hmm. grandfather put the, the pedal to the metal getting through there. Um, yeah, that that and a lot of people, fairly or not, are going to do that trying to come through 9th Street aren't mm-hmm. going to want to slow down or aren't, aren't want to try to get through to get north or south. Um, but yeah, there's, there's so many opportunities there. It's getting the businesses that we need to be there operational. Right now you have a lot of vacant business, still 9th street, 14th street blight in vacant businesses. Do you think the city made a mistake last year when they had the city parcel, they put out requests for bids and they controversially took a, another storage facility in that spot rather than putting in apartments that could have added more to the housing inventory and also brought more young single people maybe into that area that could have could have increased the vibrancy there? Uh, the city, and I, I think you've touched on it in the past, has tended to say, hey, we're going to do this, and then say, oh, well, okay, this is allowed, or that's right, allowed, right. and a lot of piecemeal type things. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to speak poorly about the prior council. 
Um, I'm just going to say that with the council we have now, I think moving forward, we all agree that growth in that those areas that we're trying to really tout for the city that are bringing people in the city, we want them to come and, and enjoy it all. Let me ask you another thing that we've obviously struggled with is the homelessness in the county. Yes. And this is an issue that, you know, I'm, I'm really kind of in the middle on this because I've spent so much time working with the homeless and met with an enormous amount of frustration. And my, my chief part of it is that it, it often seems like a lot of the effort that goes towards is just sort of putting a bandaid on the problem that makes everybody feel better that we're quote unquote doing something, but we we're not as a community, I'm not talking about as a city, but as a community, we're, we're not effectively helping to transition people out of homelessness because I would see over, over the course of a decade, the same faces over and over and over again. And right. it was a bunch of people patting themselves on the back that, Hey, we got another pe person, a meal. We got another person, a blanket. We got another person, another thing, but we haven't gotten them out of living in the street and into being a productive member of society. That's what we seem to be doing very, very poorly at. And, and also not looking at it as just this monolithic problem rather than homelessness in my experience has really you know, I, I looked at it from, oh, this is the crisis to, oh no, this is just a symptom of a lot of different crises. And a lot of them are drug addiction. A lot of them are untreated mental illness. And there's not as much connection, in my opinion, although it is increasing, and we have the data to show that now, but there's not as much of a connection between actual homelessness and the lack of affordable housing. We do have a, a workforce housing crisis in the community. Sure. Um, however, most of the long-term homeless even if there were $500 apartments available, they're not good candidates for it because they're not in a stable position where they're able to reintegrate to society and work every day and have the responsibilities you know, incorporated with that. What did you learn as a police officer about the homelessness crisis that you think you can bring to policymaking? The biggest thing I, I think early on, and really it was when because we, we had homeless back the 27 years ago when I started, 28 almost. Um, it was more of, oh, you're, you can go work. You, you, know, you, you choose to be homeless. And I'll, now it's just not that way. You know, things happen to people who are of means that then something happens in their life and the tide turns quickly. And in this economy right now, mm -hmm. it's really happened to a lot more people. Um, the sad thing is, is when it happens with families that then have to try to care for, you know, parents are going out and trying to get jobs and work and make ends meet and just not even make ends meet, get and find the ends to be able to put them to even to try to make them meet. Um, when that can't happen, then it does become a, it's a, it becomes a crisis for everyone because then you see people, I mean, it's heartbreaking when you pass certain intersections and you see a mom holding a child with a sign saying we need food for our family. We need anything helps. Um, one thing that in the last, I would say 10 years is I've just from the positions I've had with the department become more involved with more of the community organizations that assist. And it's not necessarily the people patting on the back. It's the ones who really, I mean, these people who work for these organizations dedicate their lives to this. It's so it's not, I, I've not met any who are just, I think maybe donors sometimes mm -hmm. are the ones who are like saying, hey, look what I've done. Um, but the ones, you know, who are working shoulder to shoulder with the staff, I, I'm very, I would say tight to a degree with uh, some of the staff at Turning Points. Um, Kathleen Kramer, no relation <laughs> Actually, I have a sister named Kathleen Kramer, but ah. <laughs> um, no relation. Um, Frank Fernandez, uh, they, that's, they live that. Mm -hmm. I mean, and it's, they do, they pour their soul, their heart, everything into getting that done. I think if we as policymakers can try to put ourselves, not necessarily in homeless shoes, but in their shoes mm -hmm. of trying to do whatever can be done to get that help, and I think that's that's the beginning for all of us to make it make it help. And what do you see? Obviously, 
a tremendous amount of it. In fact, I did an extensive series on this a few years back, and the the data suggests that about 85%, with a lot of uh, overlap, about 85% of the people experiencing long-term homelessness are primarily their homelessness driven either by drug addiction and or untreated mental health issues. Right. Uh, you have the obvious, the, the, the hardest one, which, which is a really perplexing uh, crisis, is those who are paranoid schizophrenic and untreated. And it's one of those things where what I found very fascinating was it's, it's, a, it's a health condition that's extremely unique in that it is the only one that I've ever come across where the sicker you get, the less likely you are to ask for or allow assistance. Right. So that's the real problem there is that you have you have a person that it, even if everything, it, you have the resources, you have the ability to give them medicine, if they don't have a really strong family or friend support system in which somebody is looking in on them very regularly, somebody is helping to make sure that they're taking their medication and not then going off of it as soon as they feel a little bit better as they're, as they're often want to do. Um, and then you end up quickly into this spiral of a person that simply can't maneuver through society. So, and then the other part of it is, is the addiction that we're seeing that started really with the pill mill crisis, you know, moved into heroin. Now is, you know, fentanyl is ripping through the system. On the on the addiction side in, in particular, obviously, you know, the the lack of, you know, the state hospitals that we used to have and the, and the ability to treat a mentally that's, ill is... That's really one of the big ones. Right, that's, and that's, that's, that's the, the first, monolithic problem. That's the one that we first saw as officers yeah. when certain hospitals were closed. Um, and we that's when we really started seeing the influx back yeah. on the streets here. When we, and, and that, you know, for... Probably, Listeners who are new late to this, 90s, early yeah. 2000s. So you, you go back to the late seventies in through the eighties. The federal government, bipartisan, had started shifting from uh, supporting the state hospitals directly to these block grant programs, in which they would say, "Hey, you know your community better than we do. We're just going to give you a big blanket check, and you can address it how you want." But those checks are going to be in aggregate a lot smaller. So we cut a lot of the federal funding out of it. And then as a result, these communities are looking and saying, well, we can't run inpatient hospitals with this. And then you started having these solutions being offered where people would claim that, well, we could do it as an outpatient service. And that was an abysmal failure because again, you're, you're dealing with people that often do not have the support system through which they can maintain this sort of, uh, of, of, you know, uh, uh, programs with their with their medicine and with their their follow up counseling and so forth, and they fall off the grid, and then the next thing you know, they're they're in a homelessness situation, and and nobody knows even where to find them. So you have that part, which I am a huge supporter of. Whatever we would have to do to invest in having the inpatient services, where when someone is in crisis and unable to take care of themselves, we would be able to offer them, you know, that that level of support. But on the addiction end. Now we've got a, a different kind of crisis, and I'm very curious as to what your thoughts are as a police officer on the optimal ways that we might manage uh, those in our society who, who have given up and are in many ways a slave to their own addictions and just cannot function in a way that would allow them to get clean and reintegrate into society. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you mentioned sort of in the beginning of what you've been saying, uh, the pill mills and the drugs, alcohol really is what all the home that was the common denominator really? with all the homeless that we would see way back when, because that was easily readily available. Mm. You know, it then became the pill mills, but they still had to have the ability to go there. It was only when they would, someone give them something and they would all of a sudden feel the addiction and then it just accelerated from there. Um, I think, and what you're saying is, in, in my opinion, it's putting those people with the professionals, that gap of being able to get them to the professionals and the professionals having the ability, they have the abilities, but having the means and the basically space to handle what's needed and to stick with it. I think, you know, one, one thing that, a lot of places just can't afford to keep trying to work on the same person who repeatedly will, mm -hmm. you know, it was shocking and sickening when we would take someone to the 
hospital after they got multiple Narcans. Yeah. And then they would walk out of the hospital and OD again. Yeah, there were a lot you of know? people. In fact, I interviewed somebody once who was of the opinion that Narcan was, was actually creating different kind of problems because you had this sort of mindset that I don't have to worry about overdosing anymore. Right. And then people were looking for stronger drugs, that, stronger heroin. Right. That's, that was what the whole idea of, you know, someone chasing a dragon. Right. Is to right. get to that, like, oh my gosh, I almost died. Right. I, I can't, I, right. I, that's what I hear. I don't yeah. know personal experience, but, but, you, but would, you, you would hear that you, because you've almost died, you know, when a strain would come out stronger, they life. would say it would sell better because the word would right. get out that, Hey, six people overdosed yeah, on this last exactly. week. I got to try. But something. here's the thing is that they didn't realize that, Oh, it's fentanyl or carfentanil, which is going to kill you mm -hmm. eventually because it's, you know, it's so much stronger that just, uh, it, it's, there's no way to get that through to somebody who what was, was in that situation in my opinion, that is, that's what they're after. What was your field experience in terms of, because you hear about a lot of drugs being unknowingly laced with um, uh, fentanyl. I have a son that's in college and he, uh, his first year, I forget, it was something like 13 fentanyl, accidental fentanyl overdoses where college kids were buying other drugs, either right. MDMA or cocaine yep. or something yep. and getting fentanyl in it. What is your experience in terms of, um, how often is it where someone's actually trying to buy fentanyl and that's what they're addicted to, that's what they're looking for versus accidentally ingesting fentanyl when they're looking for something else? Uh, so I was never in charge of any of the narcotics investigations okay. on all that. The fentanyl, carfentanyl, was always someone much higher up the chain mm -hmm. of the drug organizations okay. that somehow made that decision of, hey, here's what we're going to get and we're going to put that in with everything. You know, and that's that's the thing that's crazy to me is that their acceptable loss was, oh, we can afford to lose 10, 15 people from this batch because we're going to gain so many more on addictions and they're going to keep coming back. And it's, that, I mean, it's criminal. Yeah, like... Crim it, criminal is the softest word you can right. be. It's a terroristic act. Crime against humanity, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's one of those things because it, it, it's almost hard to get your head around because you're like... You would think that having a you know cocaine operation or right. something is lucrative enough that you could just sell people cocaine and not kill them with something stronger. It doesn't seem like there's a massive incentive. Uh, I know that it's like supposedly it's much denser, so it's easier to smuggle because you have to smuggle a smaller physical right. amount and then can cut it and so forth. But it just seemed like almost uh, you know antithetical to to what a business model should be to start right. killing your clients. Right, exactly. Way. No, our our narcotics guys, the sheriffs. Everybody, uh, task forces we had with the DEA, um, it was, you know, they were the ones who would go after organizations. You know, that's that's the idea, is to kill the whole snake. Don't kill now, the head of snake, kill the right. whole snake. What is your thoughts? Uh, I interviewed somebody many years ago from the organization, I'm not f sure if you're familiar with it, called LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. Okay. And it uh, is a national, quite sizable national uh, organization of either active or former prosecutors or police officers who believe that the war on drugs has been proven a failure and they actually advocate for legalization and treatment. Um, what are, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, legalization or decriminalization? Decriminalization. Okay. Um, I can tell you that um, I, I don't want to be walking down the street and smelling pot, you know? So there are, that's me. Mm -hmm. um, but, do we need to arrest every person that has pot on them? Maybe, maybe not, depending on what they're doing, what else is going on, if they got other stuff with them, if they've got a history of it, if they've got a history of other things. Also, uh, if, if, I mean, in different cities, um, you know, in the state, I believe, have, or certain people in certain authority positions have said, we're not going to enforce certain things. Mm -hmm. um, that creates an issue because then it's a, a sense of lawlessness. And then people get very confused. Um, I will say that even with medical marijuana and uh, other things in this state and other states, um, it doesn't. It's not going to stop a black market mm -hmm. because you know Colorado hasn't sure. stopped there. Colorado's all the money. California, same thing. Yeah, all the money they're supposed to be getting that's supposed to go towards schools, you know, from legal sales of marijuana. Let's go towards good roads and good schools. Uh, the worst roads we 
drove on in a 40-day road trip this summer were in Colorado by far. Um, so it's, it's that whole idea of getting a, not a, it's not a Band-Aid so much as if we can make it work that way, that's going to take all the problems away. It's not. It's just going to. No, and again, I don't think anybody's saying it's going to solve it, but their their no. mindset was that if you look at the vast majority of wealthy nations in the world, they approach it as a health crisis. And and again, I'm not sure how I feel about it. You know, I look at it and I, I think there's an impossible argument to make to make cannabis illegal. And the reason I think there's an impossible argument is that you cannot in any intellectual way rationalize alcohol being legal over cannabis because right. from a health perspective, from a criminal perspective, yeah. outside of the, the prohibition part of selling something illegal, but from, you know, and you, as a police officer, if you show up and someone's beating their wife, is it more likely they've been smoking weed or is it more likely they've been drinking? It's far yeah. more likely they've been drinking. Right. Um, if somebody gets in a uh, crash from driving, is it more likely they're absolutely more likely? They've but that's been also because of the availability. You know, I, I and well, not, not only because of the availability though, but it's also the effect of the drug. So like, sure. You know, I, I, I have my yeah. medical cannabis card. Yeah. I smoke cannabis. I, uh, uh, I prefer it over drinking alcohol. So, you know, I might have a bias there, but the, the reality is, is that alcohol is a drug that w the impact that it has on your central nervous system does sure. make you more, yeah, of course. you know, more likely right. to one, just want to leave your house. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you're doing cannabis, it's, it's, you're much more likely yeah. to mellow. Yes. Enjoy yes. your couch than you are yes. to get, want to get in your car and go somewhere where alcohol seems to have a very different effect, at least, uh, on, sure. on some individuals, which we're, we're actually learning a lot more about. Um, in fact, I talk, I, uh, listened to this really, um, interesting, uh, podcast recently with a neurologist. And he said that one of the things that they're starting to understand about alcoholism is that, uh, cause they still have no, they have this understanding that they believe is genetic, but they, they can't isolate and show this is where you have it more so than you could show it through family lineage. Sure. But one of the things that they are finding now is that about 10% of people, when they drink alcohol, it actually, actually has a positive, um, impact on the endorphins in their brain. So it actually increases, uh, like, like, uh, serotonin production, I believe it was, and actually kind of makes them change to the extent where two drinks is going to send them a signal saying, well, three would be better and four would be better. And that kind of doesn't turn off right. where 90% of the population after about two drinks starts to become more tired and says, yeah. oh, okay, I'm good. You know, took the edge off and that's it. Right. And his thought was, this is the best idea we have in terms of what may make the difference between a problem drinker and a non-problem drinker. Um, so what about now as we shift toward the, uh, let's go back kind of toward the city. Uh, a big decision that you guys have coming up is what's going to become the property of city hall. What? That's a big, <laughs> probably the biggest thing I would, I would argue yes. and, and important. And, and the reason I say important is, and, and to be very honest, I'm almost disappointed that the public doesn't seem even more engaged because, Oh, I disagree with you there. I, I don't, I don't know how they could be. More oh, really? Yeah. Oh, good. That, we, that's, we, that's I mean, just based promising. on the volume of the email, last few public email meetings. phone calls. Um, we're doing the, there was another meeting last night. Uh, we have, I think it's a total of nine scheduled, um, in our different wards to get out to the people. So they don't necessarily have to come mm -hmm. wherever my ward happens to have city hall in it. Right. So I have, uh, next Tuesday, the 21st at six o'clock, have uh, a basically meeting um, to go over the proposal or not proposal, but the sort of the plans mm -hmm. and not, not in specificity over the proposals, but the general idea of what we'll be looking to do to develop um, city hall. Um, there's one meeting there at the council chambers. That's the one on the 21st. And that's uh, really just, I, I expect to be pretty well attended. Um, a lot of my neighbors uh, live very close by in the rather tall apartment buildings or condos mm -hmm. right on the river who are adamantly against this. Um, so it's interesting. So what are you an, hearing an the most dynamic. of, let me ask you, in terms uh, of what people want? Either don't do it or it's not Bradenton. We don't want to be Sarasota. We don't want to be wherever. Uh, there's a pretty popular sentiment out there that uh, a downtown area is cold and People come and do other things, but they don't enjoy the downtown areas. And I think you can look at St. Pete or 
Tampa clearly to show that's not accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, the development there is pretty, pretty well defined. And even further, I mean, that's, I mean, the, the waterfront in St. Pete um, has way bigger than anything we would ever think of doing. Um, but it also, it was a catalyst to keep moving more towards the stadium, which keeps expanding. And now that comes more towards the water. That's going more towards Central Avenue and beyond, more towards 34th, over more towards the east. I'm sorry, the south part of St. Pete. Um, for us, it will, I mean, it just so happens whatever we're talking about is right on the river. Um, for me, the big thing is we have to, we have opportunities all the time. And right now there's an opportunity. And I don't know that we need to jump. Yeah, because it is a big, it's a this big, is like the last spot in that you know right. major area. Right. So decades are going to be impacted right. by... But at the same time, decide. decades, at this point, decades have already been impacted there by the decision in the mid to late 90s. Right, to do it to on the water. what anyway. there is, you know, that was very, the sentiment then was don't build that on right. the water. Almost everybody build, got thrown out of office exactly. for, for doing build, it. Exactly, yeah, build, build, you know, develop it. Don't develop it into more city property. Right. Um, and that's that's sort of where we're at now. It's, it's just sort of, now they... It's almost the opposite of well, why can't it stay city property? We want it's a beautiful building or it's a beautiful view. Well, yeah, it is a beautiful view, and if you put fourteen stories over top of that, it'll still be a beautiful view for those people. Nobody's coming and sitting on the roof of City Hall, right, and looking out on the water. Um, and people who are looking out of the water are living, you know, on the water, and right. aren't going to be impacted anyway. Yeah. The other than if they look. The and the reality is it can't continue to be used as City Hall anyway because you've outgrown it. it was, the police department was outgrown the moment we moved in. Granted, we moved, I mentioned it yesterday at the workshop, we moved out of a, a shoebox mm-hmm. that we worked in on less than half the property where the Gallo Fire Station is now on 9th. Mm-hmm. Um, that was, you know, it was, and people joke, and the rats were much bigger at, <laughs> at that one than they are right now in the auditorium. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, the biggest thing is with this, we haven't decided yet. I mean, we are, that's why we're meeting the public. You know, there, there are some who are for it because they realize, and I think I've even heard you a little bit, you realize that's the last area to develop. And if it could be a giant catalyst for the area, we don't have a lot of land. You know, I, I drove out East today cause I went out to the range and there's a public's every you know, seems like every quarter mile, but there's also development. There's new businesses going in there because that's where people are. They have the benefit of space and land and time to build it. We have the benefit of time, but we've also taken a lot of time to get to this point. We just don't have a ton of space. So it's vertical. I mean, that's, that's how we, we grow a tax base. Is to go now here's, here's the big question with that. And I'll, I'll admit like, uh, for example, I did not think that the city of St. Pete spending what it did on the pier would have the economic payoff, the multiplier that it it has. I was skeptical of it. I looked at it at the old pier and said, really what you're doing is you're just kind of sharing downtown business. And by investing in this, are you really going to draw people to the city or are you just going to maybe pull people off of Bayfront into another, you know, option? And should the government be picking winners and losers that way? So I, I, I was very skeptical until they delivered what they delivered. And I see it now. I've been up there many times on a Saturday. It is dynamic and it does draw people there. Now, the other massive advantage they have is the foresight that they exercised decades prior in having arteries to get cars out of there rapidly. So the way that 175 pulls you right out real quick, you've got maybe two dicey blocks there where traffic's bad. But, and and ironically, St. Pete is actually talking about getting rid of I-75, right? I heard uh, which is, which is to me, is <laughs> nonsensical. It's yeah. the best part of your city is how quick you can get in and out. Right. Um, but but in, to what benefit? What are what are they going to put there? I, more, I they, they said we can put more development and more housing. And it's like, well, okay. And here's my thing with housing, particularly if you do not really, really dial in the, 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 um, the idea of having affordable workforce housing component that is ironclad, right? is that we're in this unique area 
in that economically, what's really weird about Manatee County is that there's an immense amount of wealth here, but the vast majority of that wealth is produced or was produced somewhere else. Right. So there's not an economy that reflects how much money is here. So you have this thing where the medium uh, uh, household income is only in the low $40,000, but yet the average house is now, I think, over four hundred. dollars you know, so you ha that does not check out. But the reason is, is that you have so many people from other places saying, oh, I like that place. And compared to Massachusetts, that's a good value on a house. So I much better weather I'm there, right? Um, so you have that weird thing. So whenever you say, well, we're going to just add a lot of inventory and that'll help with the lack of inventory, it's immediately absorbed with high-end purchases of people that come from other places and now you just have more cars. So to me, I look at St. Pete and I say, well, listen, if you tear that down and you put up a whole bunch more housing, people are gonna flood in to buy that housing and now you have more people and less places to move them around. So my question is, when we look at how dynamic we can go with the city hall uh, replacement, how much of that is impacted by the lack of ability to move cars in and out of that area? Well, that's you know one of the interesting points of that is rush hour you know if you have people weaving that area like my wife for example weaves and goes towards palmetto right now that's counter to the influx that's coming into town likewise when she come her commute is basically the like ideal commute mm -hmm. in that situation and a lot of if people are moving to that area and not working in that immediate area they're going to be going sort of the opposite directions of where a lot of these what the issues are. Now, rush hour is rush hour. You don't want it at noon. You know, springtime, it'll be different because of Pirates games and Marauders and, and the, well, not so well attended by the Marauders, I guess, but still uh, in the evenings come to the summer and all. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, there are, there, I hope, is hope on the horizon. Uh, which would be whatever's going to be done on First Street to replace DeSoto, um, which would have to include, I would certainly think, you know, some type of arteries that come off that towards Third Avenue, towards Manatee, towards Ninth, uh, even Thirteenth, um, that can make that in that similar, not necessarily an exit everywhere, but in a sort of how South Florida maybe does it on. Familiar with 595, yeah, yeah, right off 75, 575, where you get off and you've got, you know, three exits are here, mm -hmm. and you're gonna have that side road there. Now, granted, that's also you have to have the space for it, which would have been nice if 20 years ago they would have bought those mm -hmm. those parts. Um, they didn't, so now we're we're where we are. But if that can happen, um, and there's there are what ifs, but at the same time, you can play the what if game forever with whatever. Um, I think if we can make that work, um, you know, you, you talked or you used a term earlier, growing pains. While this is being done, there will be growing pains. That's how it is when there's construction in major cities, anywhere you are. If there's something going up high, there's going to be, you know, some way to get around that. Um, so we, it, it can work. It's just, you know, that's where we leave that up to the professionals to determine those plans. If we could ever get some kind of artery coming off the green bridge down towards the museum and city hall to avoid having it all to have to go down to Manatee Avenue, that would really be a dynamic solution to, to, to peel at least the traffic that's going in you either direction. Over, from over there. like almost over the marina. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll let that stay out there. <laughs> not, not even over yeah. so much on a big yeah. elevated one, but just a dump off there that you wouldn't have to go up and because it gets really, really thick during any kind but of, then you're uh, bringing that traffic, all time. that extreme congestion down to, cause that people are going to take the path of what they think is the they're going to, yeah, they're going to try to get so that, they're going to take, take that first exit. Right, right. It's why, I mean, it's why now you see a lot of people turn on third, mm -hmm. you know, third Avenue down to 15th street, 15th street to Manatee, Manatee. Right. Yeah. West. I do this sometimes myself. Uh, yeah. I don't blame you. It's, but it, it, most time it's a little bit quicker. Yeah. You know, and, you know, that, that brings more cars in there. And yes, they will be going, you know, some will then, you know, potentially be turning right on 10th Street and parking at their, you know, if we develop that area, the parking there or coming down for dinners or whatever. It, what about the uh, Village of the Arts? That's, a, that's an area where for years I've felt like the city could do more to leverage that 
particularly in the connectivity. And I'm really right. hoping that uh, the sites... I, that, the connectivity, I fully agree with. Yeah, I the think, sites that you guys are talking about for the new police station and the new city hall, I think can play a big role in cleaning up the, the, the space between. Uh, potentially. Um, I my, my big thing is getting the people from downtown to the Village of the Arts and back and forth. Uh, it's very nice that they have you know, DOT put in those flashing... Mm-hmm. crosswalks but some type of pedestrian walkway that goes yeah that was talked about years ago is that something yeah. that there's been any conversations about again i think you and i are having it right now okay you know i don't know that there are um but that's something that the city could you know take on the cra's potentially yeah take on. yeah um because that's it's you know the whole idea of the village of the arts is not to just be an isolate they don't have walls around it Right, you know, right. The idea is to invite people in. And particularly uh, since now you have more regularly open venues sure. with uh, Cottonmouth and Bird Rock. And yeah, and it's expanded so much. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's now down to 17th Ave, you know, roughly. Um, and one of the things that was done years ago that maybe, I wouldn't say stunted it, because it's grown, it's, it's really well done. Um, it didn't go to 14th Street. They stopped short of 14th Street. And part of that is they didn't want to be roped into 14th Street. But a lot of 14th Street, you know, can get that money. You know, you can get probably better improvements through state programs that include a state highway that is basically Business 41 that runs as 14th Street. Um, That's not something I think we're going to, I'm not saying, hey, we're going to expand, you know, over to 14th Street. But the Met the backside of people's apartments are going to be on 14th street. You know, that's, and the front side is going to be on 13th street, which is the village. Um, that's going to be what, 199 apartments, I believe, um, with not enough parking. We know that, right. Uh, which I believe we're trying to work on. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, you know, those, those businesses all around there, I think the Met will definitely help it. Um, we have the Riverview on, uh, Six, the one that's going in at the corner. Oh yeah, yeah. Six and uh, ninth. Uh, we have nine twenty Manatee or nine twenty. That's um, on at the corner. The old, uh, I know it is the old uh, bank, but um, that's going to be uh, a ton of people living there. So it's it's all these. The idea of being, you know, someone was joking. They were at turning points. They had to come downtown for an event like during rush hour and it took them like 30 minutes to get there. And I said, well, if you would have walked, it would have taken, taken right. 15, you know, and first, but that's the thing is why not walk, mm-hmm. you know, if, especially with what's in between. And if we can make that, um, that a fun walk, uh, you know, other things to see public art, especially in the village, um, public art along ninth street, um, into the downtown area, you know, it's it, that, I think that's the, one of the ways that eventually if it's a vibrant downtown, it's going to be a walking downtown. Do you think one of the complaints I get regularly, I don't know if you've come across yet, uh, Glenn Gibellina, uh, I know Glenn, yeah. great citizen and activist is involved in a lot of things. And he's been very critical of Bradenton's code enforcement department within okay. the city. And he said that unlike the County, they haven't been uh, as responsive or aggressive with using code enforcement as a way to clean up many of the dilapidated areas. He sends me very often pictures of city of Bradenton homes, many of them in this area that we're talking about in between yes. saying, Hey, you know, talk to code enforcement six months ago. They said they were ta- working with the owner to get this fixed, this fixed and this fixed. If this isn't a tear down, I don't know what, what, what one looks like. Right. And a lot of them I've looked at, I've been like, Oh my God, do you think the code enforcement could be a more effective way to end some of the dilapidation that, that in these challenged neighborhoods uh, and lead to maybe some better redevelopment? Sure. Uh, the, not only code enforcement, but the, also the nuisance abatement board, which code enforcement's heavily involved mm-hmm. in, but so is the police. Um, yeah, it's it's blight. Yeah. You know, that's, and that's a lot of what, you know, there's a lot of areas in my ward that are blight. Yeah. And it's good neighbors next to bad neighbors, yes, next, that's- next to absent landlords yep, yep. Um, that are, you know, they, people want to take care, you know, you don't want your street to be dirty. That becomes problematic because you have these areas in, in Bradenton, you have some over by Wears Creek, um, where you have these very historic homes and you'll have somebody will come in 
and do a great job rehabbing one and it'll be owner occupied and it'll look like the start of something, but then you'll have these persistently blighted rentals next to them, drug houses, uh, where you have an absentee landlord who's yep. just collecting the rent and doing the absolute minimum to nothing. And then as a result, you have less and less investment wanting to come in and they'll look at that one nice house, but then say, ah, but I got to live around this and how yeah. long is this going to be here? Um, no, that's and- where I think the city, to whatever degree, and I'm, and here's, here's part of it. We have great professionals in every department of the city that know their job. Mm-hmm. If sometimes they didn't, might need a nudge because the public is saying something, I sort of view what I've been doing now, you know, I was a police officer for whatever, um, and I'm now a traffic cop where someone will call and say, hey, this this neighbor's got stuff all in their yard. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let me direct you to code enforcement. Right, uh, right. Oh, people are speeding down my road. Let me direct you to the police chief. You know, it's it's that. And I don't I don't want to say do this, do that. They They should tell us, here's our plans, and then – think the council can then try to tweak as needed and not necessarily saying, well, my ward needs this. So that's all I want to talk about. Um, it's the city. It's all of us. It's, it's people on Wears Creek who then expand out to, let's say, 15th Street, who then expand to 14th Street, who then decide to come to the Village of Arts. And it's, it's that, that push um, that if we, can keep, if we can keep things on keel uh, and code enforcement definitely plays a strong role in that. Um, if we can keep things running smooth uh, with them knowing that the citizens have their back in getting mm-hmm. that done. Someone, you know, someone whose house is the target of code enforcement is going to be very angry and is probably going to come talk about it. Mm-hmm. And every neighbor around there is quietly applauding. Right. You know, right. that something's finally being done. Finally, you're doing something. It's like, well, there's limits as to what can be done. Well, it's worked, and it's worked effectively. When you look at the Village of the Arts over the last, I would say, like five to seven years, the demand now for housing in there is so high right. that now if a house was on the market, you know it's going to get bought at a price where they're absolutely going to rehab it and take good care of it. Sure. And I've seen some really, really impressive rehabilitations over the last couple of years there. I have a few friends that, that live there and I spend a lot of time at, at different restaurants. And when I just look, you don't have to go too far out of it where you see, God, if if there was more, like there's this weird thing. I have friends that come down from Tampa and St. Pete and they're perplexed a lot when they look at some of these neighborhoods and they're like, boy, there's these beautiful old hundred year old Spanish missions in there. Why do they look like that? Like if, if it was up in, in our town, that would absolutely be bought and right. look to the nines by now. Yeah. And a lot of it is because of the challenges around it. Right. And it feels like if we could just get some of these, if we could kind of push that energy from the village out a few blocks and just get some of these other neighborhoods over that hump where 60% of the houses are looking really nice, then those last 40 would take care of themselves. Right. They'd be getting the offers unsolicited right. to try to, you know, because the demand for housing is there. And the other thing that, that I'm curious to hear your input on is the, the, uh, the compounded effect of that, in my opinion, is that, it will reduce the problems the city experiences from the overdevelopment of out east of people then wanting access the beach in the downtown because they're going out and buying new construction because it's just, they look at it and they're like, well, I could buy that house in Parish or I could take my chances trying to rehab an old house here and worry if that neighborhood's ever going to turn around. Right. So interestingly, you talk about the village. Around the same time the village was really up and coming, or getting started was when the police department started something with code enforcement with the community called the safe streets program, Mm -hmm. which was uh, from first street to 13th street. It was broken into three different from ninth Avenue down to 13th Avenue. And it was not just, it was basically weed and seed doesn't sound right, but it was basically going in, identifying problem properties and working towards getting them not to be a problem anymore be it drugs, be it um, code enforcement issues, be it other things, but also the community buying in on that and being part of it and working on not necessarily tattling on their neighbors, but making sure they were holding themselves accountable. So I think if we can get that to happen, and that's not necessarily the same program, because another part of that, of Safe Streets, was... Uh, was somewhere in South, I think maybe Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, part of that program that they did in trying to get rid of homeless was, hey, here's a one-way ticket 
to braid influx. So when we had an influx, mm-hmm. part of it was coming from this area that our officers went up to the training in Charleston, confidence Charleston, um, and heard that and were like, what? What are you talking about? Um, that's just, I mean, one way that we can try to work on things. And, it's, and it can help. It's, and, and if that, it, it, it proved to work in that area, revitalize that somewhere else. You know, and that's, again, a team effort. And I, I believe a lot of what code enforcement's doing with the revamped nuisance payment board with the police department is helping that. But that's everywhere in the city. That's little little small pockets, mm. um, you know, and it's individual owners. Uh, but, you know, until we start holding those owners accountable, you're going to have that that in every neighborhood. Yeah. Let me ask you uh, to finish up. What is maybe the area that you, is your uh, priority in your first term, the thing that you're most excited about rolling your sleeves up and getting to work on? Um, I, one of the things I've always done, I think pretty well, I'm, you know, I didn't go out and knock a lot of heads as a police officer. I talked to people. Um, once I got an admin, um, I missed just going to Seven Eleven and talking to the clerks or talking to people as they came in. I would just find myself saying, hey, I'm going out for a minute and just going and doing that because that's just how I always was. It was the first officer I remember back as a child in Washington, D.C. was officer friendly, you know, who came to the schools and made you want to be able to talk to mm-hmm. an officer. Um, I like to think I left the department with a pretty good reputation of that, not only for the public, but also for officers. I always had an open door policy. If people didn't like me, they didn't like me, but I don't think there were a lot of those. Um, I think that helped, you know, helped a little bit with me transitioning to what I'm doing now. Um, my, our biggest asset with the city is our employees. We need to make sure our employees are treated and are doing the job, held accountable, but are treated like professional employees. And I think for too long they've been treated as, I don't want to say cattle, but just replaceable. And that's not the case. You know, we, with the police department in the last few years, we've had quite a few retirements, but to get to retirement, you've been there mm-hmm. 20 years or 25 years, depending on how old you are. Um, and those people who have left, some have just left to leave because, you know, after 2020 was a tough year. Yeah. Um, uh, a lot of people just decided to get out. I've had enough. I don't need it. My family doesn't need it. My family's worried. Um, but other ones uh, have been able to parlay that into a good career to follow. You know, I'm fortunate to be when I introduce myself, I say I'm a retired police officer, but I also say I'm associate director of security at St. Stephen's because that's, and oh, by the way, I'm a, I'm a councilman too, you know, and that's, that's just how I see it. Um, but our, our employees are number one for us, for me. Um, that's not to say that, you know, someone said that when I gave my first little speech after I got sworn in that I said, I'm going to give all employees raises. <laughs> I didn't say that. I, someone said I was going to give all police raises. I didn't say that. Um, but we need to make sure that they're paid because, I mean, we're, the police department starts at $52,000 a year, and those are professionals. You know, we too often they were treated like, you know, I mean, you go to a trade school, really, is how it was looked at. Now it's, it's Mansi Technical College is who puts it all together. But it's for a career. It's, you know, we're training these officers to wear a badge and gun and go into the worst situations possible. That oh, by the way, nobody else wants to. You know, everybody remembers their interaction with the police because so few people have interactions with the police that it's a memorable occasion for them. Um, for the officers, I can pretty much tell you every house I've been to. I can't necessarily tell you everybody I've talked to, you know, but... Uh, People really need to understand that. Uh, our public works uh, staff for too long uh, went really underpaid. Uh, we found that out when uh, the pandemic came and we needed CDL drivers. And our CDL drivers said, uh, we can go, we've been here for a lot of years, but we can go to waste management and make $5 an hour more because they're paying that. We're, we have to be able to compete. And the only way to do that is to provide one, a good working environment, and two, a competitive wage. Um, 
as far as the city goes, um, you know, we have a big decision on downtown. I, my wife and I, when we were looking at a place to live, I didn't want to live anywhere but the city. Um, back in 2011, um, we, we had decisions. And I said I want to be in the city because I know the level of service I will get and you will get um, will be better than if we're in the county. No offense to the county. But if we lived four blocks into the county from the city line, there would be one deputy covering, you know, I don't even know how many square miles, mm-hmm. 12 square miles. In that same situation, if we live four blocks into the city, we would have four officers within 30 square blocks of us. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, it's, and all the other services you get. A lot of people, you know, the big hot topic, one of the hot topics in the election was recycling. The city paid for recycling. People are like, we're, we're, we've been paying for recycling all these years. No, the city paid for that. The city was benefiting from that because back when recycling was profitable, the city made a good bit of money and could handle basically other fees. Um, now, China stopped buying recycling and it's was costing way too much, which is why they stopped doing the curbside recycling. We still do city recycling, but we went from roughly 15% of uh, acceptable recycling to over 90% of acceptable recycling, um, which, you know, that 50, people didn't realize that 15%, we still had to pay to pick up, we still had to pay to deliver, and then we had to pay for it to go to the dump. Because it, it couldn't right. be recycled. That, so that's the other part is the disappointment that people see if they look beyond the surface at what doesn't get recycled. And then you have to also consider if you're not effectively picking up a ton of it, then you're a literal, also... A literal ton. Right, yes. right. Then you're also having to say, what, what's the environmental benefit if I'm driving all these trucks around right. to gather this exactly. and, and not put it back into right. the stream anyway? Right. Yeah. No, the bins, uh, the, the biggest thing is getting people to know... Uh, uh, for example, down at um, Braden Tropical Palms on 14th Street, I met with them. Uh, they were upset about the recycling and yard pickup, yard waste pickup. And we are working to get them, if they, it hasn't already happened, I haven't been told it's already happened, but we're working to get them their own uh, recycling bin there, uh, the big, you know, the big 10-yard mm-hmm. bin um, that will help, or maybe five-yard, but will help them because that's more of a retirement community is not going to drive even over to 17th Avenue, mm-hmm. 17th Avenue park, which is not terribly far away. But when they found out that there was a bin there that they could take things to, they're like, Oh, well, that's fantastic. Cause there happen to be a lot of Canadians who live there who I think by like law and maybe like to be a Canadian citizen, you have to swear that you're going to recycle <laughs> as much as you can. And I, I think like everything there except for like food waste, mm-hmm. It's recycled, you nice. know, and, but it's that's profitable for them, or or they just that's what they've decided they're going to do as a country. Um, but those people are those a lot of those citizens who are residents here, part time residents, were really the ones who pushed that for that. So, yeah, we can certainly help you out by getting you that. Um, back to what's important to me: um, employees number one, uh, growth, but reasonable growth in the city. Um, I know you've talked about, you know, with other candidates about them being supported by developers. I was supported by developers, but thankfully, um, with me being running unopposed, I was able to give back about 73 cents on the dollar, um, to either my donors or on their behalf, donate to the Braden Blue Foundation or Big Brothers Big Sisters of the Suncoast, which I'm involved in. Um, our residents need to understand that they deserve and they will get a safe place to live. Um, We have a top-notch police department. We have a top-notch fire department. Um, We have great partnerships with other public safety partners from emergency management to any of the other fire departments, fire districts in the area. The Braden Police Department's relationship with the Manatee County Sheriff's Office has never been better, in my opinion. Um, People just need to understand that we're going to do whatever we can to make their life in Bradenton as good as possible. 
And right now, I think we have that opportunity. And we have to act on the opportunities we're given whenever we are given those opportunities. Because if we don't, we sit and let them pass. And we will waste them. I think that happened. I mean, we're talking about whatever we do downtown being a 20 to 40 year decision. Well, just like 25 years ago, things were decided for downtown um, that are now a 20, 20 plus year decision on that. Um, we need to act. And when we have a chance to act appropriately and smartly and not emotionally, I think there's a lot of emotion in what goes on in politics these days. Mm -hmm. um, I will say that uh, policy-wise, I would not look for, I will promise you, you will not have things coming from me that don't need to be made into policy. It's a waste. It's a waste on the our theatrics you're talking about that. Sure. We'll just cover all, right. all bases with this. Just, um, you will not have that from me. And I don't think you will have much of that from this council. Um, because there is no need for it. In my opinion. Good to hear. And I couldn't agree more. <laughs> uh, Josh, thanks for coming in today. We appreciate Thank it. I'm sure so our listeners appreciate it. This has been Bradenton City Councilman Josh Kramer on the Bradenton Times podcast. Make sure you check out our Sunday edition. Lots of great coverage in there. And as always, thank you for tuning in the Bradenton Times fact-based news and analysis without an agenda. It's going to get loud.